Welcome back to Lip Service, everybody. I'm your host, Scott Lips, and I'm excited to have our next guest on the show today. He's the frontman of one of my favorite rock bands today, The Hives, who recently released their newest album, The Death of Randy Fitzsimmons, following an 11-year-long hiatus from music. Spin ranked today's guest on its 50 greatest frontmen of all time list, and he's definitely on my personal favorite list as I've been a fan for many, many years of The Hives. Today on Lip Service, we welcome Howling Pele. Pele has fronted the highs since its inception in 1993, and to quote Spin, the highs is the best live band in the world. On this episode, we'll hear about it, the stories behind some of their biggest hits, their history, and much more. The highs and Pele have a lengthy and interesting story, and I can't wait to dive into it. The highs wrote of fame in the early 2000s. They released six studio albums. You know them from breakout hits such as Hate to Say I Told You So, their signature suit-up look. They won five Swedish Grammys and garnered millions of streams. I've never met Pele before, but I've seen the Hives a few times, and I can attest the Hives music is the kind of music the world needs more of now. Coming up in just a moment, Pele from the Hives. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Our show today is brought to you by the fine folks at Sonos. I have to take a moment to talk to you about my favorite speakers on the planet. First impressions, open up the box, some of the sleekest speakers I've ever seen in my life. Sonos has hands down been my favorite speaker brand for years, especially as a touring musician myself. I've used all types of speakers throughout my career, and I gotta tell you, Sonos beats them all for sound quality and ease of use. I recently got the Beam soundbar and the extra subwoofer. I plugged it in, it's super easy to use, and I gotta tell you, my room fills up with sound like no one's business. The Beam soundbar has the clearest dialogue and such insane bass, especially when hooked up to my extra subwoofer. My whole room shakes. It literally fills up my bedroom with so much sound. Lately, I've also been using the Arc soundbar for my living room TV. It's super easy to connect to. I was able to seamlessly hook it up. It's sleek. It blends right into my space. The Arc soundbar has really changed the way that I watch TV and movies. I'll have some friends over. I hook it up to the extra subwoofer, and it really helps to create that intense round sound. Design is immaculate. It looks great below my TV in my living room. My favorite thing about Sonos speakers is how easy they are to use. You can set them up in under 20 minutes or so. The sound's incredible. They look incredible, and they are by the far the best gift that you can buy for anyone. Head over to Sonos.com to learn more and find gifts for every listener on your list. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Welcome back to Spin Magazine's Lip Service. Welcoming to the show, Howling Pele. I'm happy to be here. Happy to be here, too. Happy to have you here. I'm excited for the show tonight, kicking off the tour. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to be here at this table and also <laughs> in a broader sense. Happy to be in the States starting the tour and happy to be around. Yeah, I mean, know? it's got to feel great. I mean, it's been like 10 or 11 years since your last record. And what an amazing new record is, by the way. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. It, took, for, it took some doing, apparently. <laughs> yeah, for a band that loves to tour, you're always on the road. I mean, talk to me about it. Was that a hard time being away for so long for you? Uh, I mean, we weren't really away. We were playing shows and stuff, but it was really hard to not release uh, new music. It, yeah. was, it was strange to kind of keep playing the same songs over and over again. It's like, I don't even know, like, time is elastic in a flat circle and all that. I, I don't even understand what time is the last 10 years. But now we're here and there's new stuff. Did you ever think it'd be 30 years we'd be sitting here? It's like half the Rolling Stones lifespan at this point for you guys. It's been more than half. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, not really. I guess we started young enough that it was a possibility. Uh, we, yeah, I guess the reason we've been around for 30 years is we don't really think in those terms. Like, we don't think, like... 
maybe we can make it another year. So yeah. It's kind of just an ongoing thing. Uh, it's pretty cool. Like we did a tour with the Rolling Stones when they turned 40, like their 40 Licks tour, and we were opening up for them. And we were, I don't know how long we've been a band at that time, but that was like the first time we saw what that could be like. And it didn't look too bad. <laughs> Your audiences of like 50,000 or more sometimes yeah, too, yeah, right? Yeah, and they seemed, you know, they seemed to be happy doing yeah. it. Like, And they were like, well, you know, people have been calling us old since we were 25. <laughs> right. Like, what are you going to do about it? Like, just kind of keep going. Well, when you start a band, I guess at 13, it seems like you've been playing forever, right? Because that's yeah. you kind of started at that age. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. It was like a high school. It's just, you know, the high school band that never quit. I guess. Yeah. So we're kicking off the tour tonight at Brooklyn Steel. Do you have a special place in your heart for New York City? Yeah, I actually have a house in Brooklyn, not far from the venue. Oh, you do? Uh, Amazing. I rent it out, though, so I'm not there much anymore. But <laughs> I, I used to spend a lot of time here, and I, and I love it. I'm really happy to be back. Now, do you guys hang out offstage for the 23 hours that you're not performing here? Is there still, like, that camaraderie where you're hanging out as a band a lot? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's no one else to hang out with. <laughs> <laughs> it's only the bands. It's these people, you know, and maybe some crew guys, you know. <laughs> right. So take me back to the beginning, if you don't mind. We were just chatting about 13 or so. Obviously, you and your brother and the other guys met up. Yeah. And tell me how that all came about early on. Well, I've known my brother my whole life, obviously. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then... I've known Chris Dangerous, the drummer, since I started first grade. And then we met the other guys at like 13 or 14 or something. And it's been like the same people. Like one guy quit 10 years ago, Dr. Matt Destruction. Other than that, it's like the same people. Yeah. So it's like, um, it's been a weird life. And it's like, there's so many things that we only share with, you know, the people that are in the band. So you got to kind of, it's something, you know, it's yeah. pretty cool. And growing up like 13 or so, your mom was a teacher and I think your dad. And tell me about your mom and dad and what they did for a living. Uh, well, mom was a teacher and dad was a doctor, which meant, I guess, we were middle class, but we grew up in a small town in Sweden. And it was like uh, during the 80s, there was it was very like uh, egalitarian and kind of equal. So I, ne I never knew if somebody had money or didn't because mm. we all kind of felt like the same thing. I thought that the way it works was that if you if your parents divorce, you live in an apartment, and if they don't, you live in a house. Right. That's how I thought it worked. I didn't know so did you anything live in a house? to do with my. Which were you I live in a house with married parents. Yeah. yeah, but I was envious of the people that were living in apartments because they had like cable TV right. and could watch uh, wrestling and stuff, right. which I thought seemed cool. Were you into wrestling earlier? Yeah, yeah, it was fun. Yeah, yeah. Nope. I think I think you know, have, you know, kind of ten percent of what we do is kind of wrestling. Yeah. When I look at the suits, they kind of remind me of, I don't know if you remember this wrestler years ago, Mil Mascaris, but he was one of the wrestlers from the 80s. Uh -huh. And the suits that you wear now kind of remind me of his mask. Oh, that's back cool. In the day. Yeah. Do you remember the first band that you kind of fell in love with early on? Growing uh, up? ACDC at like six years old, I think. Uh, there was a cassette that like, um, I think Nicholas taped from an older friend. Like there were all these like an older generation of like five-year-older kids who were into like, you know, heavy metal and hard rock and stuff. And ACDC was like the first one that rest. I thought Kiss looked really cool. Yeah. But I didn't like the way they sounded. I liked ACDC way more. And that was like the first music I decided that I loved on my own. And I guess I haven't evolved that much. And obviously <laughs> I, still, I still love ACDC. And the Ramones in the 40s and the 50s music too, I guess, early on. Yeah, that was too. like when we kind of when we around the time when we formed the band. I guess Ramones were like earlier at 12 or something. I started getting into punk. I didn't know that punk existed when I was six. Yeah. 
But then it was like the Misfits and the Dead Kennedys and the Ramones at like 12, 13 or something. And I feel like Fugazi is a band that everyone listened to early on too. Uh, not where we came from. They, okay. weren't, they weren't really a thing uh, that I recall. Like, I, you know, I like them and stuff, but they weren't like in the vernacular or whatever it yeah. was that you get to hear. It was like, and there was no difference then between like punk and metal. So there was also like Metallica and Slayer. I remember it was like I had a cassette. It was like Metallica, Slayer, Ramones, and Misfits. And that was pretty much all I listened to, like those two cassettes. And weirdly repeat. enough, I heard that you loved the first Skid Row record, which I never Yeah, that really was thought. the first <laughs> record I bought with my own money. <laughs> uh, when I, was like, I, I got like uh, an allowance and I bought that first Skid Row. I, I still think that's really good. You know, it still sounds cool to me. Yeah. There's this weird kind of underground metal scene in Sweden too, the Helicopters and Backyard Babies, Crash yeah, Diet, yeah. a lot of those bands. So what do you attribute that scene to? Because, you know, bands like Hanoi Rocks were happening in Finland. Yeah. But uh, that scene that never really happened. That was so really much happened. earlier though. Yeah. Uh, that, that was like the glam thing. And that, they were even like before glam, like they were kind of bef glam exactly. before glam, you know. But in Sweden, like that Helicopters thing is more like, so uh, Nikkev, who's the singer in Helicopters, is used to be an entombed mm. and for some reason he's like a kind of a quiet guy but he's so charismatic that everybody starts bands that sound like his bands <laughs> right. so like he started entombed and there was like a big wave of death metal bands mm. and then he started helicopters and a big wave of like bands that started sound like the helicopters and looking like them kind of just popped up everywhere whereas like we were more popular but less influential like there's i guess like it's you know it was more fun to be like the helicopters than the hives i guess but <laughs> yeah. uh so so that's like that's what I attributed to. Just that guy starting that band yeah. meant that everyone wanted to be like him. This and I think it was the people that were in the death metal bands just kind of switched genres. Into yeah, sure. Like, this really is your first band ever. You really had that. Yeah, I got had a no, chance. nothing else. <laughs> it's all I got. <laughs> and any weird jobs you had growing up? I know that you did some odd jobs growing up. You made some signs for a convention and things like that. Yeah, I always love to hear these stories about what people did early on. It was a lot of. Um, Running upstairs. I was a mailman and a paperboy. That was mainly it, which, you know, gave me my rock hard buns and, <laughs> and the stamina to do the rock show, I guess. Um, that was, I think it was mostly that. And then there was that convention center. And then I was studying to be a psychologist and then the band took off. Or like when I say took off, it meant that we had shows so I yeah. couldn't study, but we weren't making any money. Uh, like we were making gas money and maybe, you know, buying some food with selling merch and buying food. Um, and those shows were early on when you were like 15 or so? Because the band had sort of do demos like 14, 15, yeah, 16. Yeah, well, no, it's, it's more like we, before we were out of school, we couldn't really do any touring. Mm. We we did shows, but mostly like very locally. And You had to hide like, in the basement because you weren't old enough to go into the Stuff like that, yeah. Right. yeah. Well, we play like youth centers, I guess. We wouldn't play like a bar or anything. Yeah. That would be illegal. And we played a snowboarding competition when we were like 15. That was really like in the far north of Sweden, but that was like the only, and I think our parents were like, well, you should like, you should take separate trains, like we're the royal family or something. Like, <laughs> like if one kid dies, we still have one or whatever. Um, were your parents into the fact that you wanted to do music for a living or did they kind of try to dissuade you from that early on? I don't think we thought of it as making music for a living. We thought of it as being in a band and we were going to be in like the coolest band of all time. Yeah. And making a living have like ha was not on the radar because we figured like none of the bands that we like make a living. So if you're in a good band, you don't make a living. If you're in a bad band, you can make a living. But we don't want to be in a bad band. So, so that was not. I don't think it was even a goal of ours. 
we just wanted to, it was just like the pursuit of excellence. Like yeah. we wanted to do something that we were impressed by. And then it turns out that it was the same stuff everyone else was impressed by, I guess. Yeah, talk to me about the first time you heard some of those bands, the Stooges, the Ramones, we had touched base on. Like when you first heard bands like that and, and your relationship to those artists, that minimalist punk. Well, the, the Ramones was, was uh, it was like 80s, early 90s Ramones. Mm -hmm. Like, I, you know, I knew about like Blitzkrieg Bob and all that stuff. But we loved lo those late Ramones albums. Yeah. Like that was our, like the, sort of like popular, like Mondo Bizarro yeah. and like those records, Brain Drain, I guess. Even that the Joe Ramones Sony records were great too. Yeah, they were great. Yeah. That was later though. But like when we were in school, like those records came out, the later Ramones, like kind of popular Ramones. And we loved that stuff. And then like the studios we got into just because people heard like our second record and were like, Oh, these guys sound like the Stooges. We're like, maybe we should check the Stooges out. <laughs> I heard Iggy Pop's old band. Like, we had no idea they existed before we sounded like them yeah. or, like, supposedly sounded like them. And we're like, well, this, this is great. <laughs> but it was, like, after the fact that people said that we sounded like them that we discovered the Stooges. But you're right. They probably never went on to make a ton of money. Iggy on solo, but the Stooges yeah, yeah. themselves I mean, we, never... we, we loved Iggy Pop and stuff, and we were aware of him since we were children, but we didn't. We weren't aware of the Stooges, really. Yeah, and early on, where did the image come from? Because obviously you guys always look amazing. You always wear these suits that are matching. I guess on tour, you probably only have that one suit, or do you have multiple no, versions? No, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty <laughs> disgusting, actually. <laughs> you have the one suit. But you always looked incredible. You always had these matching black and white yeah. suits, tuxedos. Where did that come from? I mean, was that at an early age at 15? You said the Ramones all wore leather jackets, so we need to have an outfit like that that's something memorable yeah and it's well easy. it was just like it was a rebellion against what was current in like punk and indie music mm -hmm. which was like that kind of grunge ideal of just like wearing whatever you rolled out of bed in or like going on stage and acting like you were not on stage because yeah. i guess they were reacting against like glam rock sure which was so poofy and like <laughs> kind of too much going on you never went through your glam rock phase no, I was I like I liked I remember liking like uh, Guns N' Roses, but yeah. I wasn't really like No, I wasn't in a band at the time. Yeah. I was too young to be in a band when I liked that stuff. But so the the reason for the clothes was that like we wanted it to be like a show. Like we saw James Brown on TV and like that's that's what it should be, like like that but a punk band. Yeah. So it should be like dressed up and stuff and and it was also it was so fun cuz we play like these squats in Europe, like these punk super like anarchist punk squats wearing suits and there'd always be a bunch of funny altercations about it like we get into fights over wearing suits <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but we just thought that like it's we were into the fact that it was showbiz and it was the uncoolest thing you could do at the yeah. time like to be into the fact that it was showbiz and like we even built like a big sign with light bulbs on it that we'd like lug into these like tiny little basement shows and stuff and act like we were on in an arena and then when we actually started playing arenas, it kind of like wasn't as, it was weird because we were like, we were doing all that shit, like that overblown showmanship because we were playing to 20 people. And that's why we thought it was fun. And then we're like, well, now we're actually doing that. You know, it's not like there's no sarcasm or irony in it anymore. What do you do? Like, do we do something else? But then it's kind of too late for that. Like, in a way, I guess it was like changing into your superhero outfits, right? You would put those on, it was like you become superheroes yeah, yeah, yeah. in a way. It's like war paint. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so did you win the fights, by the way, if you got in a lot of fights early on? Yeah, I mean, we're pretty good at avoiding it <laughs> by either running away or looking like we can fight. Yeah. Uh, and that's usually all it took. I mean, and, you, and a lot of times when people wanted to fight you, they were so drunk that it wasn't really a problem. 
but you know, I don't want to fight at all. <laughs> well, take me back from 93 to about 94, your first record, Barely Legal, and how you came to getting the record deal from I your think demos. It's like early. 97, I think that record was. And it was because we we released an EP in like, I think 96, so we recorded in 96. And then 97, we graduated school. Like that was the first time we were like free to roam yeah. earth or whatever. And two <laughs> weeks after graduation, we recorded our first album. That was in 96, 97, I mean, which was barely legal. And neither us nor our record company thought it was going to like, anything was going to come of it. So we were like, you know, we had our jobs and we started studying and stuff like that. And then we got to do like one tour as the first out of four bands that was like a record, a record company, like kind of arranged a tour with their biggest bands. It was refused and no fun at all. And a ska band called Liberator and, and us first. And we would sometimes play like before doors or whatever. Yeah, I've, I've been to those gigs and they're yeah. real hysterical. The yeah. place opens at nine, but you're on at 8.30. Yeah, like, yeah something ah, like that. I don't think anyone's going to be here. And then, uh, but, but it was such an awesome like experience for a bunch of like 18 year old kids to go like roam through Europe and like get free beer and wine and eat baguettes in France and, you know, <laughs> right. see like every city in Europe. And, um, and after that, I guess, uh, I mean, we, we kept, we, we were working on the second album, Venue Divicious, and we did that for quite some time. Uh, and then, uh, we, we recorded it once and like failed cause we didn't have enough songs and the mood was really shit. And then we spent another six months like finishing it and then, magic happened and we got really popular on that album yeah and that, the first record you had some odd jobs you kept quitting these jobs to go on tour was that what yeah was like happening? quit the job go on tour uh move out of your apartment go on tour <laughs> come back home get a new apartment get a new job do that for two months like move out because <laughs> like we couldn't afford like we we couldn't afford to have apartments if we were on tour and we couldn't afford like we didn't it was kind of like uh, really like hand to mouth, yeah. but you know we were young enough that we could still kind of live off our parents a little bit, I guess. Any great memories from those first tours that you did? Yeah, tons. It was yeah. it was so much fun, like kind of just being, you know, group of friends like going everywhere in Europe and and like having these weird like kind of fucked up experiences, uh, like going. I remember like we had a really great night where we played in like Slovenia and and we. The minute we stopped playing the show, it turned into a gay disco <laughs> while we were like loading out. And it was like the weird. And then we like, and we found out like DRI, like Dirty Rotten Imbeciles, like the yeah. old, like kind of hardcore crossover band, which we really liked when we were like 12, uh, was playing like some squat down the street. And we went there and we like went to that show. And, and that was like, a, that was really wild, like weird, because it was so lawless. Like yeah. Eastern Europe at that time was completely lawless. And then, and we, we had some Slovenian money because we sold a couple of T-shirts and got paid for the show, I guess. And then we're like, we can't use this anywhere else. So we went to gas station, like driving out of the country at like kind of at four in the morning after that show. And we were like, oh, well, let's buy cigarettes with all of it because we're going to need cigarettes the rest of the door. <laughs> and we just forked up all the money we had and said like cigarettes. And he started scratching his head and he gave us like a fucking... <laughs> boxes and boxes of cigarettes so there were like free cigarettes the rest everyone started smoking a lot and then we got stopped at the border by like machine gun wielding customs officers who dragged us out like in underwear in the snow and like it was a, it was a bizarre time for smuggling cigarettes 
No, just because they were like, they want to fuck with this rock band from Western <laughs> Europe that, you know. <laughs> what was that, like $26 that you made on that show? Like, what Something was, like that. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was like the currency exchange was <laughs> was nuts. <laughs> Along the way, you have all these amazing, you know, Kerrang! and Enemy and all the magazines start singing your praises. I think Spin at that point around then called you guys the best live band yeah, we're still saying that, by I, the way. I'm still saying it too, <laughs> by the way. We're, we're still using that. Like, Spin Magazine calls them, you know, like hey, 20 we'll, years later. We'll say it too on this podcast. So, <laughs> But talk to me again. We were talking a little bit about Vanny Vedu Vicious and, and sort of working up to that point of that record. And that was sort of your breakthrough record at this point. And yeah. Even the story behind songs like Hate to Tell I, so, I Told You So. Like, tell me the story behind that song and, you know, how that came about. Because obviously that was sort of your breakthrough song. Yeah, that and, was like the big one. And at the time, like we played so fast that we figured if, if we have like one song that's slower, people are going to like that the most because it sounds most like normal music or like what we kind of said, normal music. And I think we also like, that's the one that where people started comparing us to the Stooges. But it's like, a, it was a long kind of complicated, we kind of decided to play every riff twice as long as we thought we should. Right. To kind of make like, and and we realized then that it was like, it was some, that was the first time we realized like, just kind of repeating stuff over and over and over again is is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so that was like the most repetitive song, and uh, and we made we first made a video for AKRT, and that kind of didn't take off. I guess it was popular, but kind of more of an underground thing. And then we did a video for Hate Sad Told You So, and that got really big. But it felt gradual to us because we were like in the band, and yeah. every month we'd play to more people and more people. And, but to everyone else in the world, I guess it felt like we came out of nowhere and like. And by the way, at that point, you guys have been together for probably nine or ten years. Yeah, like too. seven years or something yeah. like that. Yeah, and and which was kind of cool, like because when we were like, it was you know, it was like the hives, the strokes, the white stripes, and all that stuff. We we're like, well, we're like seven years deep here. Yeah, like it's not <laughs> like oh these new bands. So I'm like, okay, cool. But I guess you know, I, it makes sense because we were very like under the radar for. Or, and like the first seven years we were in school so yeah. like we couldn't make a splash really. so how does it feel at that point because we were just talking about courtney love and Noel gallagher and people like this that were singing your praises as yeah. well as enemy and kerrang how did that feel at that point after seven years and kind of having this hit record of everyone starting to sing the band's praises it was really cool you know i remember like those where you play in la and like all the famous people start showing <laughs> right. up it was it's so, like a room it, of only famous people yeah, at the yeah. roxy or exactly it is, yeah. like it's the roxy and it's like yeah. oh that's courtney love there's morrissey <laughs> yeah, like and right. all that stuff but that was I love that. That was yeah. really fun. And and we did one in a, in London too, where it's like all the Brit pop like royalty showed yeah. up. That Noel Gallagher there and stuff. No, I you know I think you know those were all people that we were like aware. Those were like the famous people when yeah. we were growing up. So that was awesome. <laughs> what was the story behind Main Offender? Another great song off of that record. Uh, the title is lifted from. I didn't know he had a record called that, but there was a photo of Keith Richards with a written "Main Offender" on a on a sure. chalk, like in chalk on a wall or whatever, or like blackboard or something. And I was like, "Oh, that's a cool title," and and I took the title from that. But then, like, I realized he had a solo album called that, and that's why he'd done that. Uh, and it was really like kind of because around that time, I had a friend who was into psychedelic music, and he gave me the Sonics, like Sonics compilation called Psychosonic because he thought it was going to be psychedelic music. Like, and he just, he bought it and he, he's like, I, he decided he didn't like it, but he's like, Pella's going to love this. And he gave it to me in like the school cafeteria. And that album was kind of like somebody like stroked my DNA. I was like, this is music for me. Like, yeah. You know, because I loved like punk and I loved 60s music. 
I didn't know that there was 60s punk. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> by the way, underrated band, by the way, the Sonics. Yeah, amazing yeah great. Band. Like one of our favorite all-time bands. Yeah. And it, the main offender was, you know, around the time. It's very influenced by them, I think. Would you say if there's songs that you're writing that feel like they'd be too much of a hit, you tend to go the other direction in terms in of In a way, we, like, we throw away a lot of melody because yeah. we don't think that, like, fits. Yeah. We want it to just be this insane, energetic noise. And if you put too much melody in it, like... I mean, that's what most people like, melody. And if, like, Swedish people seem to have a knack for it, like, it's all, you know, it's easy for Swedes. Right. Like, come on. Abba. And we have to, like, <laughs> constantly, like, fight our, you know, that we want to put more melody in. Because yeah. uh, it's kind of like, it's a little, it can be like an inverse relationship to energy. Like, um, it's hard to come up with examples, but but sometimes if you're just, like, screaming one note all the time, that sounds more intense and energetic <laughs> as opposed to, like, singing melodies. So I think that's, it's not like throwing away hits really, but we want it to be a hit for some, that it's just like this weird, like maybe a weird turn of phrase or like mm. we want it to be hits in other ways. Almost like hip hop where it's more about like the the alliteration and kind of like repeating phrases and stuff more than, more than uh, you know, singing a chorus melody. Like we don't like choruses. <laughs> we like verses. <laughs> Couple other songs that are my favorite songs that you all do: "TikTok Boom" and "Walking uh, Walk Idiot Walk." Two other songs I love. Tell me the stories behind those songs. Um, let's start with "Walk Idiot Walk" because that's before that. It was like that was our. We're gonna be the first thing we put out after we got massively popular. Like we spent like a year uh, making a record. And we wanted, but uh, we always feel like we want to react against the last record we did. Like Benevita Vision, so like a messy, like big roomy sound. And we wanted it to be really tight and kind of concise, concise mm. sounding and and like robotic. And that was uh, like we were talking about making it like a mix of Kraftwerk and the Sex Pistols. Like even that was Devo too, I guess, right? Yeah, like which ends up being Devo, I yeah. guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so we were like, uh, we were kind of messing around with that sound and uh and that like that riff came out and and it was the rest of it was written really quickly kind of like in one go like the riff and and the chorus bit and then it, it kind of it, it was pretty easy it came together pretty easily and then i think we played it at uh south by southwest like we had a few new songs and we played that was one of them and then some journalist called it like the best rock song since smells like teen spirit <laughs> And after that, there was no way the label was not going to put that out as the first <laughs> right, single. Like, right. We're like, oh, yeah, sure. Not. They're like, if you have Smells Like Teen Spirit, you got it. But I'm like, yeah, sure. But is it? Like, I don't know, man. <laughs> like, not a lot of songs are that, you know. But They always uh, need something to hook into. So Yeah, I guess yeah exactly. Yeah. And, and so that was the first single then. And I remember mixing it before all the other songs and stuff so that we could put it, that first single out. Uh, and uh, there was a lot of speculation at the time that it was about like George Bush and like 9-11, all this stuff and war and terror, you know, but it wasn't really specifically that mm. anti-authority song. And I guess people saw what was the authority of the time in it. But th so there was a lot of like uh, questions about the political connections to that song. But it's being not what a, it was being about. Being a Devo, like um, Jerry Casale from Devo wanted to make a video for it. And he wanted to have like a Dick Cheney lookalike, you know, because so he made it like completely about that. And we were, I guess we were kind of uncomfortable with that. Like yeah. we're a Swedish band, like were we like, getting are too we political. really getting, uh, no, like, and specifically in American politics. Right, like, right. I know a lot about like European politics, but I wouldn't say I got like a PhD <laughs> in American politics, really. Right. 
especially around that time, everybody was so hypersensitive to what was going on too. So yeah, it was it was a weird time, definitely. Yeah, and about the live show, obviously, about that time you get noticed for having this incredible live show. It's almost like a sport view. You get injured sometimes. Yeah. Recently, you got hit in the face with the mic, right? Talk yeah, I'm to, like an athlete or whatever. Right? <laughs> Talking about the live show, do you do you kind of like? Getting injured, because obviously I feel it's almost like part of your show at this point. Like, yeah. the more dangerous it is, the better, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I I need to feel something. I can't do a show and not have it hurt a little bit. Yeah. Like, either, <laughs> like, you know, jump into things or, like, uh, scream so much that it hurts my throat or whatever it is I'm doing. But I always feel like it's got to, like, be physical and you got to feel something. Mm. Like, that's why I do it. Like, I like... Like the, it's some kind of like full release for me. Like it's the culmination of everything. I think kind of that's awesome about being a human, like nuts, like endorphin levels and, you know, crawling around on teenagers screaming into a microphone. It's like, that's my idea of fun. I was watching the video when you got actually, when you hit yourself in the face the other day, whenever well, a couple of months ago with the yeah. mic and I used, you didn't even stop by the way. No, why would I? <laughs> I, mean, I think the coolest thing you can be. down your face and it's, you know. I think the coolest thing you can be as a rock band is unstoppable. Yeah. Uh, if you have a band like, and you throw, like somebody throws like a plastic bottle on a band and they stop playing, like I think that's like the biggest sign of weakness I know. <laughs> that's not a dare, by the way, or yeah. a challenge to anyone in the crowd, but Don't I feel like it. it's it's important to me to believe that a band is unstoppable. Yeah, no question. Well, this new record, in fact, it's a crazy story behind this new record. So talk to me about the, you know, the story behind this record. It's about Randy Fitzsimmons and how he was like the sixth member of the band. And yeah. you guys actually dug up his grave, I think. It wasn't a grave because he wasn't in it. Right. We needed to figure out if he was. If he was. He's, uh, he's always been involved in all our albums uh, and in the band from the get-go. It's like a six member or friend or foe or whatever he is, but he's always been there and like, and he's not anymore. And it's really strange. And that's what, you know, probably the main reason it took such a long time to make the album. So we heard that he was dead. We found was supposedly like the grave trying to find him. And that's where we found the demos and they are his demos. You Like you can tell they sound like, all his demos always sounded the same. I guess he always used like the same shit equipment. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we're pretty sure that they are like uh, Randy Fitzsimmons originals. So when you say you heard he was dead, had you not been in contact with him? No, for a not for years? years. For years. That was what was weird. Like we were touring and playing shows, but we didn't have new songs. Like there was new, no new songs. And we were kind of just like keeping it going, pretending like everything's going to be okay. But it was pretty painful. <laughs> <laughs> so historically, he was the one helping writing the songs yeah, yeah. and everything. And then he, you kind of, he kind of goes off the radar. And someone said, "Wait a minute, is he?" He always did though. Like between every record, he'd go off the radar for a year or two while we were touring. Like, yeah. And it, it made no sense, like kind of hanging out all the time. And he do, he doesn't want to travel. Like that's one of the things, like why he's not like playing in the band and stuff. And uh, so, but, so, but it just took way longer this time, and he never surfaced again so where do you go to you went to find these demos there was some actually like a, a monument to him or something well it's just like kind of a i wouldn't call the monument look real homemade <laughs> it wasn't like a mausoleum or anything like more a little wooden kind of thing and the demos were in there yeah so there, there was this like 10 or 11 year hiatus between records now 
Yeah. You were just talking about you were touring this whole time, but it must have been hard for you being a band that loves to create and loves to go in there and create new music. Yeah, so, it's terrible. I didn't yeah. like it at all. I kind of, in a way, sometimes wish we would have quit for a few years in the mm -hmm. middle there, but I, I guess that's not our style. Was that ever an option or not really? I don't know. It's it's weird to think about now. Like, yeah. but it's easy. Like hindsight is twenty twenty. Like, we should have probably like quit in twenty thirteen <laughs> right. and then got back together twenty seventeen because <laughs> then we would have known what l real life is like. And now we still don't. Yeah, this is sort of your Chinese democracy moment, I guess. <laughs> yes, it is. Like we were we were even talking about that. Like shit, we're just like two years away from Chinese democracy. Like that's nuts. You were, you were saying the making this record is like making an exciting action movie for you. So talk to me about the making of this record and what it meant to you. Well, well, it meant a lot because it was like finally we could like record and we could be like, you know, what we think a band is, like a band that goes in the studio, makes albums and tours, like a band that exists on all corners of the creative spectrum or whatever. But we were, and and once we had the songs, it was pretty quick and the main thing we wanted was that it was going to be like real childish and punk and like insane, like no maturity, like not, especially if you've been away for 10 years, you don't want to be a band that comes back and like, oh, I'm going to tell you about real life <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and be all mature about it. Like that's not why we got into this music. Like we got into it because it was just like pure excitement. Yeah. And we didn't want it to make any kind of sense or be any kind of like, commercial considerations or or sound like something that people might like we wanted to be the like the most uncompromising record we could make and weirdly like people really seem to be into that Love it, yeah <laughs> how did this process of writing this record differ from the other records because obviously you didn't have randy to be part of this process for this record then yeah the the main difference with that was like that we were we had to like we didn't have his feedback because usually like we have the songs and we make a version of it and he would like say, yeah, I like that or I don't like that. But yeah. now we had to kind of decide on our own if we liked it or didn't like it. Uh, yeah, I mean, like the arrangements and the finishing the product. Because some of his songs are very finished, like the demos are very finished. Some of them are not. Some of them are like kind of scraps of paper and <laughs> right. like vague ideas. And we have to like make it a song. Uh, so we had to trust ourselves in that. And that was uh, what was the the big new thing, I guess. Were there songs like we were just talking about before that were too good, and they had the choruses were too big, like we had spoken about? You're like, this is too much of a hit, so let's go back to something yeah. a bit more punk rock for this record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there was stuff at least where we're like, oh, that's too much melody. It's too much of a song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You don't want it to be a song. <laughs> <laughs> We'd rather well, have I mean, snippets. I, we want it to be a hit, but we don't want it to sound like a hit. If that makes any sense yeah. whatsoever. Like, we don't want it to follow that rule of like verse, pre-chorus, chorus, like big chorus, long chorus, and all that stuff. But which most, you know, that seems to work. Like people love music that works that way. But we just kind of like feel like, no, the hook should be in the verse, and it should be like just a repetitive, you know all this stuff that we're probably just making it hard for ourselves, but it's the way we hear it. You Although know? there are kind of hits on this record, though. If we talk about like, Rigamore's radio, amazing song, right? Thank you very much. Sort of inspired by hip-hop in a way? Yeah, like, yeah, we, that... I guess we were always kind of inspired by, by hip-hop, or, like, at least... Because it seemed like people in rock when we were young didn't sing about what, you know, the stuff we thought rock bands should sing about, like being larger than life yeah. and I'm better than you and all this stuff. Like, <laughs> right. We found that in hip-hop, I guess. Like, 
kind of that battle rap, like bragging, which is what rock and rollers used to do. Yeah. You know, like Bo Diddley would do that. Sure, like sure. I've got a rattlesnake yeah. for a necktie and all that stuff. Uh, but then, you know, it, it became so meek, like rock lyrics in the early 2000s and like late 90s. It was all about being, you know, I'm, I'm weak and I feel bad right. and I'm depressed and all this stuff. And, yeah. and we kind of wanted it to be the other way around. Yeah, so... So it was based on that drum beat and also like that it was no melody. So it's almost quasi rap that yeah. it's just like, I'm just saying stuff that makes me sound cool, <laughs> I guess. And the videos are amazing, by the way. So talk to me about the videos because you did two incredible videos, in particular Bogus Operenda and Countdown to Shutdown. Yeah. Both the videos are great. Yeah. Talk to me about the idea from the Evil Dead concept to the office that you take over. Yeah, well, I, I guess a lot of the video ideas historically are usually are like concepts. But we can't direct. We don't know how to make film. We don't know how to like shoot stuff or make a schedule or anything like that. So we have to get like directors to, and it's usually weird because directors usually like that's the guy that calls the shots. Yeah. But we're like hiring him <laughs> to call the shots over. It's like a real messy like uh, thing. But do you storyboard it first and then give it to him, or do they bring pretty the much? Ideas yeah. To you? Okay. And and then they like because like Ob uh, Perry who did the. Uh, Bogus Brandi video, he's um, like amazing, like big hotshot video director, like Harry Styles and Megan The Stallion and stuff, like um, artists that obviously have bigger budgets than us. Yeah. But he's a fan and he wanted to do it. And I had like a concept and he kind of tweaked it and stuff. And he like, I have to like hand all that stuff. To, like that was his, he's the guy that made it that awesome. Uh, the Evil Dead theme, by the way. Yeah, yeah. For yeah, those that, of you yeah, who exactly. haven't seen it, it's a great. It's, it's like a gore uh, splatter exactly. splatter film. Yeah. So we were like, and I was talking to him like, oh, I just realized that like, isn't there like a sensor thing on YouTube? Like, how does that work? And he goes quiet for a bit, and then he goes, "You should have thought of that sooner." <laughs> after, <laughs> after the videos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, after we like started. Sh- <laughs> I think we was right before we shot it. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess. But it seemed to be real popular. But we, that was the same thing too. Like he wanted it to be like, no, it's got to be like way too much. It's got to be way overboard. Like it can't make any, like the hives are coming back after 10 years. I don't want to fuck that up. It's going to be like insane. And I think he managed to do that. And Countdown to Shutdown, another great video we were just touching base on. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was, uh, yeah, kind of also our concept where it's, uh, I once hosted a karaoke night in an old like derelict office building and there was like I got I guess I got some money to spend on it and all I did to decor it was like shred documents <laughs> uh, so it's like a, a pillowy room for the shredded documents and um, so we kind of took that and then we wanted to make a video where someone else was performing and it wasn't us and we found this these guys that are like those guys are actual like big shot corporate guys. Like the drummer is the CEO of the biggest mining corporation in Sweden. Amazing. And he had this band with these guys for like 30 years and they are, they're the band in the video. And we're like, isn't this going to like hurt your stock value or whatever? Like this doesn't seem very serious to us. But he's like, no, I want to do this. It's great, you know. And, uh, and they did a great job. It was really fun. It's amazing. Another great story, by the way, is a time that I think it somehow at Dave Grohl's house you threw up on New Year's Eve. Story that lives on in yeah, infamy. I did. Yeah, <laughs> talk to me about that story. No, I I was there celebrating New Year's, having a great time. You know, maybe drank too much Jägermeister. 
I don't really like Jägermeister so much, <laughs> but he does, I guess. And I remember having a a hat made out of a real wolf's head on my head. And I just like, I had like a big shot in his bar, like, and, uh, so you're at his and house. I threw up a little bit, just a little bit in my hand. <laughs> and it was just like a little puddle. And I just said, well, I think I should go home. That's me. And then I left. That's it. Were you friends with Dave at that point or you just happened to be at his house? How does that come about? I mean, we've, we've played festivals together for like 20 years. Like yeah. we meet like once or twice every summer for 20 years. So I guess, yeah, we're friends, you know. And again, another band that, tell me about your relationship with the Arctic Monkeys. Obviously, just finished a tour with them earlier this year. Yeah, I love that band. They're yeah. great. And uh, I guess we were like one of their early, like big influences. Yeah. Like, I think they went, like, I think it's the same month or whatever. They went to see the Strokes and the Hives. And, and that's why they wanted to start a band. So, like, we were a big influence on their early stuff. But they've changed so much, like. You know, I can take no credit for their later work. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but uh, it's almost like lounge music now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and or like croonery, yeah, kind of. Yeah. And we we did like a, I, we toured with them in South America, like maybe fifteen years ago or something, and had a great time. And it was good, you know. You know, and then uh, this UK like stadium tour they did, um, so massively popular. I think they saw like. 700,000 tickets in like an hour or whatever it was. Incredible. And so we did a bunch of shows on this last tour with them and it was uh, it was great. I got no complaints. They're it's amazing. Awesome, I just, awesome band and, you know, it was fun tour with them. Yeah, great, great band. I'll do it again. <laughs> 10 out of 10. <laughs> it's amazing. We just had Albert Hammond Jr. from The Strokes on the show not long ago. He's a friend. We were talking about Meet Me in the Bathroom around the time when your second record really started happening. Did you ever see that movie by then? I didn't see a movie. I, I, I guess I'm in the book. Uh, they interviewed me a bunch of years ago about, and it was fun, you know, it was fun to talk about that stuff. And, was there I a camaraderie between the bands early on? Yeah. Or maybe like a rivalry or camaraderie. I don't know. Like we, <laughs> you know, I, I love the strokes. Like when their first EP came out, I'm like, I'm going to love this band forever. Like this is great. And I feel like I still do, you know? So yeah, there's a lot of love there. And the White Stripes, we met really early on. Like we did like Top of the Pops together and stuff. And we'd like, you know, oh, you got color combination too. Like you also play like kind of garage rock. Like, you know, there were so many things we had in common yeah. and influences and stuff. And, you know, Jack's been kind of a friend since then, really. Yeah, so, you yeah, worked like, with him too. Yeah, yeah. Whenever I'm in Nashville, it seems like we come up with something to do. Definitely. Well, talking about the tour, we were just talking about it, but you got to be excited. You know, it's kicking off tonight. Yeah. By the time we listen to this, this will be a couple weeks later. So it's All not right. tonight. <laughs> it, it was a great show, tonight. by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but the tour, obviously, there's, there's obviously going to be, you're going to be touring for, I guess, like four or five months on this, right? Yeah. I, I don't know how you calculate that. Like, we think of it as like we do a tour that's like three or four weeks and then we're home for 10 days. Like, yeah. did the tour stop or are we still on tour? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Right. But this is like a, a longer thing where we do like, three weeks of US and three weeks of South America. And it's going to be awesome. Like this is the first day of that. Yeah. So uh, we'll be home for Christmas, I guess. But I'm really excited. Like there, every city we play is like a good, fun city. So it's going to be awesome. Where are the crowds the best for you? Do you have a certain city uh, that you just can't wait to go back to? Mexico. Mexico. They is, love rock and roll good. over there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's so many places. Like Glasgow is awesome. London can be awesome. Germany is awesome. 
all of South America is pretty great, yeah. actually. Yeah. Love rock and roll. And for the record, there won't be another 11-year hiatus between records at this point. Well, we're hoping. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> fingers crossed. Uh, I'm going to do everything in my power to either make a record sooner than that or not be in the band <laughs> in 11 years right. when we make the next one. <laughs> Are there any more collaborations coming up? We were just talking about it. You, you know, you work with so many great artists over the years. Jack White, Nerd, Cindy Lauper even, for yeah, a lot of yeah. people that don't know. Timbaland, any more coming up? Or artists I hope that you would, so. Like, artists it, that you'd love to work with? Uh, well, our standard answer was David Bowie. That's not going to happen. I don't. With AI, I guess it could happen, but you never know. Collaborating <laughs> <laughs> with AI, David Bowie. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Like I, I don't have anything that's like that seems obvious. But all those things are very coincidental. Like all those cool collaborations we did were very like, oh, that just happened. Like it wasn't really something we planned on doing. Yeah. The Christmas single with Cindy Lauper, though, we. That was very much like our an initiative, and like she's been one of our favorite voices since we were kids. Amazing! So that was really fun. So no uh, other collaborations to speak of, but they'll probably come about organically at some point. I'm yeah, sure. I hope yeah. so. Yeah, definitely. Well, we do this really fun thing at the end of the show. We do these top five lists that people seem to mm -hmm. debate uh, for ever and ever. So I wanted to ask you your top five most underrated rock bands of all time. Ooh, underrated. Yeah, starting with number five. I I have to be like. I have to tell you a little story. My favorite story about this, like Phil Spector was asked at some talk show, like, what do you think is the most underrated artist of our time? And he goes, Elvis Presley. <laughs> and people start laughing. He goes like, no, really, you have no idea how good he is. <laughs> I think that's kind of cool. We found out. <laughs> so I wish I had time to prepare this. Well, Most underrated bands. Okay. Uh, number five, let's say. Number five, let's say. Like it's going to be a bunch of Australian punk bands because I feel like they don't get enough credit compared to like the American and English sure. punk bands. I'm going to go with the Australian 70s punk band, The Victims, for number five. This is going to be, I might have to debate it with myself, but I'm just going <laughs> to shoot from the hip and uh, go now. Number four? Uh, I guess both The Victims and this band, like what they did wrong is they didn't make enough music. I think The Remains, it's a 60s rock band that I love. Uh, they should have maybe made more songs mm. and then it would have been a bigger thing. <sighs> We're on number three. Number three. This is going to be weird, but for number three, I'm going with The Saints, another Australian punk sure. band, but they did a lot of music later and that was kind of folky. That was also awesome. I th he's one of my favorite singers of all time. They were like pre-ACDC, I think, right? Yeah, they, well, it was like same time, maybe 75 or yeah. 76, 77. And... Um, the Sonics. The Sonics. And for number one, it's ACDC. Number one is ACDC. ACDC, because you have no idea how good they are. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and uh, moving on to this topic, too, the top five best showmen or show women in rock and roll. Oh, wow. Start with number five. I feel like I should just do five and then put them in order or something. Yeah, well, we could do that, too. Okay, best, best top five best showmen. Let's start at number one. Can I do that? Or is yeah, that like yeah, yeah. You can do anything the, you want. The drama is kind of <laughs> fucked up. Then. It's, you can do anything you want. Uh, uh, one, James Brown. Two, Mick Jagger for like pure like longevity. Yeah. Like, that he's still doing it. I agree. One of the greatest ever still. Yeah, 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 exactly. And three, Tina Turner. Amazing. These are all like 60s people, I realize. Maybe yeah. showmanship is dead. Four, myself. Yeah, we can put you in there. I'll put you in there for sure. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, 
and five, David Lee Roth. Amazing. I love that. <laughs> You're speaking my language. And because you've toured the world and eaten all over, and people love food on this show, so okay. the top five, let's say, Swedish delicacies that you could ever eat. Uh, we, don't, we probably don't know them okay, here, yeah. so number one, five. Number one is uh, something called a toast skagen. Skagen is like a, I guess you'd call it a salad. It's like a, me- a goo. Okay. That's like shrimp, mayo, lemon, dill, and sour cream. Kind of like a, it's like something you could get at like Ross and Daughters. Like a, it could be like a Jewish thing, but it's a Swedish like, and and they put it on toast and it's, that's amazing. Haven't had that. That's really delicious. And number two. I mean, I don't, you know, Swedish food is like, <laughs> I don't necessarily love it. I'm going to go with the meatballs for a second. Okay. It's like meatballs with lingonberry, which are really tart. There's a very pressed. bad version at Ikea. Yeah, 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 exactly. But there are awesome versions yeah. uh, in, in Sweden. I'll, I'll show you the best ones if yeah. you're ever there. Amazing. And um, Number like three. mashed potatoes and stuff. Number three, I mean, I've been a vegetarian most of my life. And a lot of Swedish food is not vegetarian. It's just kind of all meat and fish. So this is hard for me. I guess the pickled herring is like a thing. I mean, it's kind of like an acquired taste. Yeah, I was going to say. Some of it's horrible. And <laughs> the number four is like something we call caviar, which isn't. It's like a fish roe paste, mm. kind of a pink, kind of like a tarama salata, but really salty that we put on crisp hard bread. Sure. Damn it. I'm going to switch this. That's last. The third thing is crisp bread, like hard, uh, hard bread. I think we're on four. So number one, skagen, two meatballs, three, crisp bread, four is uh, pickled herring, and five is caviar. Those last two I don't even like. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Well, this is a lot of fun. I can't wait to see you tonight. By the time you hear this, the show already happened. Yeah. I'm excited for your tour. You missed it. (laughs) Check out the new record. It's incredible. Thank you. One of the best records. And please don't make us wait another 10 or 11 years for the next record. Do my best. Okay. Thank you, sir. Awesome. Appreciate it. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Thank you all for tuning in to Lip Service. What a great conversation with Pele. I can't wait to see what they have to do next. Everyone go have a listen to the death of Randy Fitzsimmons. And if you can, check out the Hives on tour. Thank you all for the support of the show. Please like, comment, follow us on all socials. Stay tuned for some super exciting and awesome guests that we have coming up. Episodes drop every other week wherever you listen to podcasts. Let us know who we should have on the show next or any other feedback is much appreciated. I'm your host, Scott Lips, and we'll see you next time on Lip Service.